And we're going to talk about factors that can decrease treatment adherence and how best you can address them. And some other special things like the sick role and what that means for physicians and how to give bad news to patients in an informative and compassionate manner. So the reading for this is in your green Saller and Carr book. And I like to start with this quote because just a reminder that um, you could have all the best science, all the best research, you could have a drug with 99.9% .9 efficacy, but it won't do you any good if the patient doesn't take it. So 50% um, of your job is going to be just getting patients to follow your recommendations, keeping them involved in treatment. So one of the key words that you hear in the current healthcare climate, the climate that you'll be practicing in, is partnership, physician-patient partnership. It's in all sorts of managed care names. You have you know, partners in health, partners in care, um, Harvard partners. It's the catch word, and what that means is that the patient is an autonomous participant in their health care. And you're treating the patient, not their disease. So I like to start with this study because it drives home the point that sometimes your relationship can actually have a treatment effect. And what I mean by that is if you're treating something like pain, in this study, we are looking at patients who have lower back pain and they're rating their pain on a pain intensity scale. And in the study, the researchers are looking at the impact of electric stimulation, so E-STEM. In this case, they call it IFC. Um, so E-STEM applied to the back muscles. And the idea there is that some electric stimulation pulsed at the right times will decrease pain. But they want to test the impact of E-STEM on back pain compared to a placebo, a sham. So still putting the electrodes, but instead of administering electric current, administering a sham, or not sufficient current to actually have an effect. So they want to test the impact of electric stimulation on low back pain, but they added another variable, and that's the treatment relationship. So you have four groups, and in these four groups, one of them gets the active E-STEM, plus a more limited therapeutic alliance. And by therapeutic alliance, this is the Physicians, or in this case, their physical therapists, were taught to talk to the patients, ask them about their life, check in with them, start to learn a little bit about their life, empathic, compassionate, warmth, de um, demeanor between the therapist and the patient. So that would be called the enhanced therapeutic alliance, as opposed to a limited therapeutic alliance delivered by just, you know, kind of standard um, talking to them, but not really showing much interest or compassion in, in their life. So um, we have four groups. One is active e-stem with a limited alliance, and then the sham, the placebo e-stem with um, the limited alliance. So there's your kind of placebo effect for the actual treatment. And then we have testing enhanced therapeutic alliance plus e-stem, and the sham e-stem and an enhanced therapeutic alliance. So they were administered this intervention, but before treatment, and after treatment, they were given different measures of pain intensity. So what would your hypothesis be in terms of the group that should benefit the most? So by benefit, I mean show the greatest reduction in pain intensity. Which of these four groups?
again, this is active e-stim, placebo, plus limited alliance, active e-stim plus an enhanced alliance, placebo e-stim, enhanced alliance. So which one should show the biggest effect? Anyone not clicked in? Okay, so 53% of you thought that they are, basically thought that the treatment alliance, the treatment relationship, in this case, the clinician-patient relationship, would have an effect as well as the active e-stim. But a large percent of you thought the treatment effect probably has nothing to do with the relationship, that it's the same whether you have a limited or an enhanced therapeutic alliance. So let's see what the results say. Um, in this case, we're going to be looking down here at the percent of pain reduction based on self-reported pain intensity. And we see that this, in this case, the, the absolute placebo, so no e-stim, and then a limited therapeutic alliance had the lowest change, the lowest reduction. So from a four to a three. So only a difference of one. So we expect that. That was essentially the placebo. And then if we look at the active e-stim, just the e-stim effect, independent of the, the relationship, so it was a limited relationship, there's a, a nice big reduction. So e-stim is showing some treatment effect. So they had a 45, almost a 50% reduction in pain intensity. Now we look at the sham e-stim and an enhanced therapeutic alliance. So what this is, is essentially just the therapeutic alliance effect. And lo and behold, it's actually bigger than the e-stim effect. And then finally, when you combine electric stimulation for low back pain with an enhanced therapeutic alliance, it was the largest effect. So the take-home point is that the therapeutic alliance contributed to the treatment effect. Now, when it comes to pain, that's not a surprise to you at this point because we've talked about the subjective aspect of pain. And in this case, the patient's experience of the healthcare as, or the, the uh, clinician as empathic, warm, interested, actually contributed to a reduction in their pain intensity. So the point there is that the, the relationship matters. So this has not always been known. There's been a lot of research in the past, I would say, century, because there's been a huge paradigm shift. And so what you'll be practicing in is a result of a lot of research that shows the importance of the physician-patient relationship. Um, during the time of the Hippocratic Oath, things were much different, and we'll talk about that. But right now, in your healthcare climate, the, the rights of the patient are to know everything about their disease. And the responsibility of the physician is to provide, to inform the patient the nature of their disorder, so their diagnosis, all available and recommended treatments, and the probable course if left untreated. That may not always be good news but it's important to communicate. So patients have the right to have all of their information and physicians have the responsibility to provide it. The physician has to listen to the patient's concern, address them objectively, and respect the patient's decision. Even if the physician doesn't agree with it in the end, again, the climate you'll be working in is that patients have autonomy, they have the right, um, not, ultimately they have the right not to take medications. Even if you know that it will be not in their best interest, you can only inform them, but in the end, they make the decisions about their own body. Now, a physician can um, refuse to perform an act that they morally disagree with. So the physician does have the right. Let's say a physician is against abortion and 
doesn't feel ethically that abortion is right. The physician can refuse to perform an abortion, but the physician has to refer the patient to the appropriate place to get treatment. Of course, where this is in countries where it's legal. But um, this, and, and, the, and the other kicker here is that the physician can't judge. Um, the physician has to welcome the patient back, especially if it's a long-term care relationship, welcome the, the patient back into their care after the procedure. So the physician has a right to have their own moral and ethical um, principles, but they have to respect the patient's wishes and still welcome them back into care. So the Patient Bill of Rights came along in 1972, and that really changed the climate a bit. So um, it used to be during the time of the Hippocratic Oath that you would withhold certain information from patients because you wouldn't want to um, really to upset them was the bottom line, to give them information that you felt was too difficult for them to, to take. But that changed with the Patient's Bill of Rights, at least legally. So the patients have the right to complete information, even if it's not good, about their diagnosis and, again, the available treatments and the course if left untreated. The patient has the right to refuse treatment. And they have the right to know about a hospital's financial conflicts of interest. So if uh, you know, one of their physicians is on the board of a pharmaceutical company or has some stocks or some, some can earn money, basically, by prescribing a medication, the patient has the right to know about those types of conflicts of interest and make their own decisions about them. So it's basically you just have to inform the patients, but again, they make their own decisions. Um, in line with that, the Patient Self-Determination Act came along in 1991, and that's what introduced, essentially, the patient's right to make decisions even if they're incapacitated. Yes? Well, that gets challenging, right? You still have to provide all the information, but you have to do it in a sensitive way based on the nature of that disorder. So um, we can't get into that, because that's actually quite a complex question, and I, and I have to keep going, but we can talk about it later, too. Um, but in general, it's the same principle that the physician has to provide all the, the information. And in the case of factitious disorder, if they want to say it in something like, well, I have the, the, the sense that some of your symptoms may be due to stress, that's usually a nice way of breaking that, you know, that, that it may be less due to an actual, like in conversion disorder, an actual neurologic disorder. It may be due to the effects of stress of that idea and how that might. And so you can find ways of communicating it, which are actually honest, but still sensitive to the psychology of that particular disorder. So in the Self-Determination Act, so there's some recognition that patients might become incapacitated at some point, but that doesn't mean their autonomy is removed. They have the right in the, in to make decisions about the end-of-life care in advance. So do not resuscitate, do not, so DNR, DNI, do not intubate orders, advanced directives, that's all part of the Patient Self-Determination Act. So um, again, they have the right to make in advance decisions about their end-of-life care so that decisions aren't made for them when they are no longer capable of making them for themselves. Yes? So up until a point, yes. So if a parent refuses treatment, let's say, for example, it's against their cultural beliefs to administer anti-epileptic medication. Um, at some point, child services may get involved and then decide that the parent is not making the best interest or not making decisions in the best interest of the child. And so um, some sort of proxy will be designated by the state. That does come up if a child's health or welfare is um, at stake. So I guess there are limits to that. 
In term three, you're going to get into specific cases where all of these are challenged. The point here in this lecture is to introduce you, and you will find lots of interesting cases that challenge this, and that's when you'll dig into a little bit more in term three. So this is your basic overview and introduction. But I think you're already going gonna to love term three, because you really get to dive into these issues a bit more. <laughs> OK, so a little bit simpler, effective communication. So what are the three main goals? Why do we have to communicate to patients? Because you want a good interpersonal relationship. It will enhance the treatment and um, basically predict better health outcomes. You want to facilitate the exchange of information. Now, this would be really simple if we could just plug our flash drive into a patient and download all the information we need for a diagnosis, right? It would be much simpler. But unfortunately, we rely on their communication to tell us what's going on. We have lots of labs, tests, and you can get you know, different um, signs and symptoms from laboratory tests. But actually, you, you need your patient to tell you what's going on. And they're not going to tell you if they don't like you if you have a bad relationship. So that's the kicker. You have to be able to um, get them to open up to you. And to do that, there's some you know, tools that we'll discuss to facilitate an open exchange of information. So patients have to be included in decision making. And that comes back to this idea of self-efficacy and perceived control and the benefits of that on patients taking ownership of their own health care. And um, we, we've, we've talked now for a few, in a few lectures about the importance of health risk behaviors. So essentially, if patients aren't participating, if they feel a sense of learned helplessness, that they're not going to act in a way that is benefiting their treatment. And so you want to have them involved in decisions and take ownership of decisions. Um, so informed patients have a greater sense of control. That's what we were talking about, self-efficacy, perceived control. So that allows them to tolerate higher levels of pain. And there's been many studies on this, something um, as simple as if I tell you to put your hand in a bucket of ice water, and I say, hold it there as long as you can. You're in complete control. You can take it out at any time. Subjects will hold their hand longer. They'll tolerate ice water pain much longer if they can take it out at any time. If you say, hold your hand in there for 60 seconds, right? And they're trying, and they're trying, and they have to, they, they'll just take it out. So, Actually, if you give them a sense of control, they'll tolerate more pain. That's why we, we want to inform patients and so that they have a sense of self-efficacy and control. They'll actually recover faster from illness. So even a common cold, if they feel that the, patient, that the doctor has an empathic, communicative relationship with them, they can recover up to a day faster, even from a common cold. So it can enhance a psychological adjustment to illness. So um, some patients might be given a diagnosis of a chronic disease, and they'll have to take a lot of ownership over that disease. It will change their identity, and that's a process, but it's facilitated by more information. If you don't give it to them, they'll find support groups online, they'll find the information, and you'll lose a sense of connection with your patient and what's at, what they're actually doing to treat their disease if you don't keep those lines of communication open. And what of course, insurance companies like is that greater control leads to shorter hospital stays. Why? Because a patient feels competent to go home and, and follow the treatment regimen, adhere to the treatment recommendations. So what are some other benefits? A uh, good doctor-patient relationship can help uh, patients regulate their emotions. So when they're given 
a difficult diagnosis or some bad news. They're going to look at your face. They're going to see how you're, how you're responding. If you give them some sense that this is catastrophic, right, they're going to feel it's catastrophic. So they look to you to give them signs of how bad is it, and you help them regulate their emotional response. Now, if it's a, bad di if it's a, if it's a serious diagnosis and it deserves some weight, you know, you want to show that, but also that their life isn't over, that there are things they can do to give them control, and then you give them the information they need to, to establish a new, I guess, identity with, as, a, as a chronic pain person. And so um, if you have a good doctor-patient relationship, communication, it can facilitate their comprehension. So if patients are really stressed, you give them bad news, and they can't process it because they're too anxious. But yet, if they feel calm in your presence, if they trust you, they'll actually be able to comprehend what you're telling them better. And, of course, they're going to tell you their needs, and you're going to be able to better address them. So patients, and these are all from research studies that show that if there's a good relationship, they're more satisfied with their care. Again, um, in the big data world now where patients are always given surveys after every hospital visit, um, institutions, big hospital institutions, really care about this data. And the biggest contributor is the doctor-patient relationship. So if patients have a good relationship with their physician, they're more likely to rate the whole experience as more positive. And patients' agreement with their, the nature of their disorder, so when I say nature, the etiology, the reason for it, um, and, and, and this, the need for follow-up, is associated with their recovery. So if there are some barriers to that, and whether they're cultural or social, that will get in the way of a patient actually following your recommendations. But you won't know it unless you ask. So there might be cultural things that keep them from taking medications, but again, you won't know that until they feel comfortable enough to tell you. And you're going to have a whole small group on this today or tomorrow, depending on when your small group is, where we see examples after examples of how this goes wrong and then healthcare is affected negatively when there is not effective communication. So all the surveys um, that have been given um, have shown that patients want better communication, and doctors tend to overestimate their ability to communicate with patients. 75% of orthopedic surgeons in this one survey believe that they communicated satisfactorily with their patients. But when the researchers asked the patients, Actually, that number is quite different. It was 21% of the patients actually felt that there was satisfactory communication. So there's a gap. And most of, you know, every med school teaches doctor-patient relationship, right? And the goal is to reduce that gap. Um, again, it makes everyone happy, the, the hospital institution, the healthcare companies, because it is, it's such a strong contributor to health outcomes. So how do you do it? How do you have a good relationship? Some of this is so simple, it just comes to you so naturally, but we'll still just spell it out. You have to look the patient in the eye when they come into the room. So let's just take um, a regular clinic where you have your computer, you have your, your table there with the funny paper and it's too high so your legs kind of dangle off, right? We have an exam room. And the patient's sitting there waiting probably for a little while and you come in. The first thing you do, sit down at the computer to look up what the nurse has written in the electronic note about the patient so you can know what you're dealing with because you didn't have a chance to check before. 
So you walk in, you go to the computer, you start looking it up, because you know it's important for you to know what's going on with this patient before you talk to them. This is not going to facilitate a good relationship if the first experience they have of you is not even looking in the eye, but going straight to the computer. So no matter what, the best thing or the most important thing is when you first walk in the room, you have to look them in the eye. Some patients, if they're from a different culture, won't want to do a handshake, won't want to, to touch you. There could be gender issues there and cultural issues. But for the most part, in most settings, you'll do a handshake. You'll look them in the eye and do a handshake. And there will be a few seconds interchange that will determine a lot in the relationship. Meaning that first experience, those few seconds of experience with you, will color subsequent interactions. So it's very important that in the beginning you come in, look them in the eye, introduce yourself, call them by their last name, be respectful, and ask them an open-ended question, right, so that you can get them talking and listen. So those first few minutes are critical. You want to listen. You want to have a receptive body posture. Again, if you're sitting at the computer and you're kind of bending over, looking at things, they're not feeling an open exchange of information. So the posture matters. Usually physicians, you'll see they'll wheel the chair over, they'll sit across from you, and they'll be ready and open and receptive for the information. And the pleasant, encouraging tone to keep them talking. Empathy is not, um, for most of you, it's kind of just this natural thing. Other people, you have to think consciously about it, but um, it's usually just some reflection back of what they're telling you. If um, they are showing emotion, to express a little bit of that back to them. If they're really sad, you don't want to try to, to laugh or be cheerful or try to cheer them up because that'll be a mismatch. So it's some degree of mirroring, but mostly it's as simple as asking them about their life, checking in with them. I had an annual physician for years. I couldn't believe she always remembered so many details year to year. How did she do that? Maybe she took notes. I'm not sure. But it left such a positive impact. And, and, and I always felt so welcome and comfortable. Of course, she was booked six months in advance because she was so popular. But it was that simple thing of just remembering a few details about my life that made a huge difference. So ask them about their life, their kids. Um, show some natural warmth and curiosity. And that can go a really long way. But empathy is getting a lot of attention, um, especially in Caribbean medical schools. There's a big study that showed um, in the University of West Indies that students, like yourself, medical students, actually had a decrease, a decline in empathy during their five years of medical school, so after their clinical rotations. So what happened? Why did they become less empathic? Right? There's, there's a, it's, it's an it's a interesting idea. And there are some, some theories, and that is when you go on clinical rotations when you have, you're lotting, learning a lot of new procedures that essentially to take on the emotions of patients is just too overwhelming, that it can interfere with your cognitive processing, you need to be sharp, you need to be on, this whole touchy-feely stuff just confuses, it's too fuzzy, it gets in your mind, you know, so you just lock it out so you can think clearly, right? Um, there's another study that's really interesting in that it, gives, it provides some sort of mechanism for that and this idea of when we're empathic, when we're looking someone in the eye, we're engaged, we're emotionally attuned with them, that we will tend to mirror. So um, it's as simple as if I'm doing my hand like this, you, if you're watching my hand, you might have some response on bold, or like a, a blood oxygen level dependent response on fMRI in your hand area of your motor cortex. By watching my hand, you activate your hand area. 
That's just called mirror response. It's probably just you know, some way of understanding the movement, movement comprehension. But they also call it a mirror effect. So if you look at healthy controls compared to expert, so these are physicians who have training in acupuncture. And you put them in the fMRI, and you show them, in this case here on the left, in the little orange, you see a Q-tip applied to the mouth and to the hand and to the foot region. That's the control. The experimental condition here in orange or red, reddish color, is a needle applied to the mouth, the hand, and the foot. So you would expect to have a larger bold response in the mouth area. So here we have the mouth area, and this is the bold response to which one, the Q-tip or the needle? The needle. So a larger pain response. In this case, pain we know involves more than just the somatosensory cortex. Um, this is actually somatosensory, sorry, not motor. I was doing a motor example with my hand, but in this case, this would be a somatosensory mirror response. So you would see a greater somatosensory response to the, the needle, and that's what controls showed. But look what physicians showed. No difference. So they didn't have a difference in activation. When they were observing pain in the pictures, they did not have an increase, let's say, in their mirror response. And the, the idea behind this study is that sometimes physicians have to turn it down because they can't be too empathic. They, if for a surgeon to, to, to feel pain in his own abdomen when he slices a stomach open, it's going to get in the way. So you have to turn that off. So here's what we're asking of you. What a challenge among the many challenges you have to be able to turn up your empathy and turn it down. Turn it up when you need it in the, in the, in the clinic, in a room with a patient, and turn it down when it gets in the way. Right? when you have to focus, when you have to do things that might actually cause pain, and you don't want an empathic response. So again, you have to tell adults the complete truth about their diagnosis and prognosis, and you have to use words that the patients will understand. They've probably never heard the word metastasize. Right? So you can use the word spread. It's as simple as that. Use vocabulary words they'll understand. You might, in the moment, be so excited that in, especially early in your career, that you know all these words, but you have to remember that the patient doesn't know them, and so it will get in the way of communication. You have to speak to adult patients directly, not through relatives or staff, so even cognitively impaired patients, um, you want to speak to them directly. Have the relationship with the patient, not the family members. Of course, you involve them to the patient's choice, you know, whatever choice, to whatever degree the patient wants but you talk to the patient. Now this can also apply to kids. And some people say, well, you know, you're really talking to parents when they bring kids in. But you want, I mean, you've seen a good physician who knows how to bring out the toys, who get the kids engaged in treatment. And, you know, from a very young age, kids are building a schema about their interactions with healthcare professionals. And so if they have a positive experience, then they will have, like, more likely to have positive experiences down the road when, as they get older, as they mature, then they have their own independent relationship with the physician. And you don't want to discuss the care with the family without the patient's involvement. The patient has to direct the knowledge dissemination. Okay, So it has to come from them who gets to know what. So you don't want to offer premature reassurance. Of course, you want to give accurate information. You don't, if, you, if you feel that your patient might not take something really well, you don't want to kind of smooth it over, put too much icing on it to make it taste better because 
it's just, it is what it is. You kind of have to be realistic and give the patient accurate information. So one of the big things is you can't scare them into treatment. These fear tactics have actually been shown not to be effective, that it just ends up negatively um, affecting the patient relationship with the physician rather than getting them to take the medications or adopt a lifestyle change. And he, like we talked about in changing behaviors, that essentially scaring them or forcing them or trying to take an authoritarian stance doesn't work. It has to come from them. So that means you have to explain things to them in a way they understand. So before you begin a procedure, you have to explain it. And this is a very powerful effect. So when um, my, my daughter had surgery at Boston's Children, they had this really cool quality of life team, and they came in, the anesthesiology team, and they let her do this exercise where she get to choose the mask to get her um, the, the anesthesia, the anesthetic agent. So she, she basically got to choose the mask and the scent. So in her case, she wanted a strawberry scent. So that when they went to put her to sleep, she already knew in advance. She had some autonomy, some choice. She was only six at the time, but yet that took away a lot of the fear. I mean, it didn't take away my fear, but it helped her, and it made a big difference. So little interventions like that at hospitals where they put a lot into quality of life can go a long way. In patients who've had um, abdominal surgery, in one study, half of the patients were visited by the anesthesiologist, and they were told that you're gonna experience some pain after surgery, but it won't last long, and there are some exercises you can do to reduce it, to lessen. So kind of like the, the progressive relaxation we were talking about, to lessen the pain. Those patients took half the level of pain medications as those who weren't given the pain talk by the anesthesiologist before surgery. So it comes back to this idea of expectation, perceived control, and how powerful of an effect that can be in terms of response to treatment or pain management. So you don't want to order, you're not an authoritarian figure, you want to provide information and let the patient decide. It all comes back to the idea of patient autonomy. So what are some barriers to this? Um, transference is a concept we'll talk more about in the psychodynamic lecture. It comes from Freudian psychoanalysis and it's essentially the schemas that you build very early in life in terms of your intimate relationships will stick with you and that you will try to fit people in your life into those schemas. And the doctor is included in that as well. Why? The physician-doctor relationship can be a very intimate one. That you might not realize, it, but that, I mean, you've been patient, so you probably do realize it, that people are highly attentive, they're in the moment, sometimes emotionally sensitive information is conveyed, and that makes it an intimate relationship. And when you have an intimate relationship, you bring all your schemas of intimate relationships into the room. So patients might have some maladaptive or some um, schemas that have caused them problems. For example, if a young woman's abused for most of her life and only learns to relate to men in a sexually provocative way and to get attention from men in that way and to always want to be attractive, she might then want to apply that same template to the physician and then not communicate information that she feels would make her less attractive. So the physician may not get the full story. That's the problem with transference, is it can impede the open exchange of information. From a physician standpoint, you might have your own counter-transference issues. So you might have had things in your life that you bring into the room and that can impair or 
I wouldn't say impair, but maybe reduce the efficacy, the efficiency of the exchange. So let's say you have a wonderful relationship with your mother, but your mother passes away and you really miss her and she went through a long, difficult cancer and it's very emotionally raw for you and then you have a patient who reminds you there's something about her that pulls up this, this schema for your mother and you find it very difficult then to give bad news, to give maybe even a cancer diagnosis to the patient. So that would be what you bring to the room and that what you have to think about in terms of maybe impairing your ability to give full information. Another barrier is when physicians dehumanize or objectify their patients. And you see this a lot um, in, in physical exams. The best example I can give is when my daughter, because she has joint contracture, she has arthrogryposis. So when she was young, she would be kind of a rare um, disease. So uh, physicians would come through in teams and they would look at her contractures and they talk about them and, you know, isn't this interesting? And for, so I, I didn't realize at the time how much of an impact that would have on her. And now to this day, it's very difficult to get her to go to a doctor's appointment because I think all that early objectification, using her as a teaching tool, really um, negatively impacted her view of the, the physician relationship. So you have to be careful with objectification and also about talking, talking about a patient in rounds, making sure you're far enough away so they don't hear things. Can't, sometimes you can just step out of the room. You have to kind of go down the hall. That happens a lot because you know, patients are actually really wanting to know things, and so they'll listen. And physicians sometimes in the heat of the moment will forget that. Sensory impairment can be um, a big barrier to effective communication, but it's easily overcome with a little bit of legwork in advance to get the interpreters um, set up or to provide written materials if a patient is deaf or hard of hearing. Um, cognitive impairment, again, you can provide written materials if they have memory impairment or dementia so that they can refer back. You have to do a little legwork sometimes to understand the level of, of um, their competency to understand information. So you might need to order an eval to better understand that. And uh, of course, at some point, they may need a proxy or a healthcare or a family member around to, to help that, but you still have the relationship with them. Language and cultural differences are, are really interesting. And we're gonna spend the whole small group today and tomorrow talking about those. So I won't belabor it too much here because you get that a lot later. Um, age and gender effects, pretty simple. Women, um, we talked about in the sex and brain lecture, talk more. <laughs> uh, I'm standing up here talking, so of course that makes me a little subconscious because I talk a lot. And, and of course there is this gender effect where women have more, like, more verbal fluency. And so for physicians, what that means is that women will be a little more communicative about their symptoms and men a little more taciturn. They may not talk as much, so physicians have to probe a bit more. I mean, these are stereotypes. Of course, we know it doesn't apply to everyone, but it's just one of the gender effects in terms of communications to be aware of. And then we have a long history, at least in the US, of health disparities based off of race effects. So one of the most famous studies you probably know well is the Tuskegee study, which is in the 30s, how a team of researchers wanted to understand syphilis left untreated. So they enrolled 600 men, 400 of whom had syphilis, and these were all African-American men in Tennessee, and they didn't sign consent, and they were enrolled in the study, so they got free health care, but what they weren't told, and were never told, is that they weren't ever given treatment for the syphilis. 
So they were having exams, they were giving lab tests, but they were never given the drugs. And even when the drugs in the 40s came around that could actually treat the syphilis, they still weren't given the drugs. And they were never told what was going on. So this didn't even come out until 40 years later. They're still being followed when the Associated Press reported on it and there was a public outcry and say, how could this be? How could you do this? And there are treatments. So at that point, there were reparations and, the, and they were given treatment, but 40 years going by with untreated syphilis. So that leads, those types of this history leads to a lot of distrust in terms of race effects in patient-doctor communication. So there, you know, that this, these are things that the U.S. is still dealing with and will, will be a part of, when you, if you practice in the U.S., need to be a part of your awareness. Okay, so just take a moment to think about this case and how you would best handle it. Okay, so you're a physician, you have a Sikh patient, she has epilepsy, and you know the importance of epilepsy, uh, taking anti-epileptic medications. You know the risks of sudden unexpected death in epilepsy, or the risks of having a prolonged status epilepticus, leaving the patient impaired without memory. So you know that there is indeed, or there are indeed real risks of not taking anti-epileptic medications. So should you allow her to treat her seizures with natural remedies in yoga? Probably not. You, you want to, to make sure she understands the importance of the medications. So should you inquire about the natural remedies that she plans on using and discuss options for combining them? Yes, that's probably the best approach. Let's just think through the other ones. Can you demand that she stop all natural remedies? Because maybe you think, I don't know what those are. You know, they could be harmful. Well, it doesn't, it's not that hard to look it up and talk to some Sikhs. Talk to your patient, find out what they are, and then go research if there's any contraindications. Now, most of us know the Sikh diet is pretty healthy, and so it's probably not going to be many contraindications. But um, and if, if you want your patients to eat healthy and you want them to practice yoga, that can actually help in terms of seizure frequency. That's what at least one study showed, that yoga can reduce seizure frequency. So it may actually be complementary. But again, you have to get her involved and help her understand the importance of anti-epileptic medications. You don't want to refer to a specialist. Always, in the USMLE world, never refer out. Okay, figure it out yourself. That's, that's, if you see a question, it's always about what you can do to learn more about it. Unless it's something like ophthalmology, where you have to refer out. But for the most part, in the USMLE lingo, you're a primary care physician and you never refer out, you just figure it out yourself. Okay? Um, you want to emphasize that, you know, people can die from untreated epilepsy only if you want to scare the patient into treatment, and we know that that doesn't work in the end, okay? It might, it might feel like it's the easiest way to go, just tell them how bad it would be, but in, in the end, it, does, it negatively impacts the relationship. So B would be the best answer. Okay, so how are, what are some factors that can in, impair treatment adherence? Uh, the biggest, no surprise here, is a poor relationship. If patients don't like you, they're not going to do what you say. It's as simple as that. 
um, if they think you're cold or unapproachable, if they're angry at you, um, if they're angry at the practice, let's say you made them wait too long. These are things that actually are taken into account when they try to reduce waiting times because the healthcare institutions that you'll be working in know that patient satisfaction has to do with simple things like this too, just waiting time. They'll rate you more negatively if they wait longer. That's not fair, but it's true. Believing that the financial and time cost of care outweigh the benefits. So if a patient thinks that it's gonna cost them too much, take too much time, they're not gonna follow a treatment regimen, so you have to ask them about their perceptions and their expectations so you can negotiate that. If the, if the symptoms stop, so some people might think, oh, I'm not having seizures anymore, why should I take medications? So you have to you know, educate them about the importance of continuing and to take medications even if the symptoms stop. Their blood pressure normalizes, you still have to take blood pressure medication. Or if the treatment schedule is too complex, right, and they just can't follow it, maybe they have some cognitive limitations, and so it's up to you to be aware of that. Um, Patients' fears can get in the way. They can fear a loss of bodily integrity, side effects. Of course, there's some really negative side effects from some medications, incontinence, and that can be such a horrifying idea to them that they won't take the medication, so you have to have that open exchange to find out. They might fear being dependent on others. Some, you know, we know this idea in, in male athletes where they just will play through an injury because these have ideas of masculinity. Um, so you just wanna be able to address those with your patient they might fear of losing work, so they hide their symptoms or just kind of be stoic about it. Um, and again, you want to discuss it with them. They might avoid or be in complete denial about an illness. And you'll see that if some people have been traumatized, let's say they lost a loved one to cancer, and then they find out they have cancer themselves, it's just too emotionally overwhelming. They can't handle it. So we know about that whole Kubler-Ross stage of denial, right? So this is sometimes what you'll see. And then sometimes with some patients, because of the emotional weight of some of the diagnoses that you will be giving in, in your career, they'll regress to um, a more immature kind of attention-seeking behaviors. They, they might act out. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the psychodynamic lecture. Um, you wanna discuss patients' fears about side effects. You wanna have um, a conversation about that. If needed, you can make higher doses and shorter treatment if it's, they don't think they'll be able to follow a medication regimen for longer. You need to check in every single appointment with whether they're taking their medications. That improves adherence. And sometimes you, if patients are cognitively impaired, you can do simulations with them. There are actual tools for that to do a pillbox simulation to make sure they can actually organize their own medications on their own. Maybe they need some help and then you'd have to work with setting up some sort of visiting care program. And then behavioral intervention. So if patients need help, you can also enlist family members. You can enlist family members in helping the patient keep a seizure diary or tracking um, some of their health risk behaviors and, and enlisting the family to help you address those health risk behaviors with the patient. And now we're gonna talk about a specific issue in healthcare called the sick role and how that can impact treatment. So it was a term proposed by Talcott Parsons in the 50s. It's this idea of when you're sick, you get out of things, right? Sanctioned deviance, we call it. So you don't have to go to work, you don't have to go to school take a day off, lay in bed. Most of us don't want to do that because we don't like being sick and we want to go to school or we want to go to work. But for some people who are totally overwhelmed and maybe they don't even admit that to themselves, being sick is kind of a reprieve. Um, again, they don't feel they're responsible for it because they got sick, it's out of their control, right? But the goal is in society, we all agree, we have this sort of contract 
that if you're sick, you have to do something to get better again because we need you to participate in the roles and responsibilities of a, of a social being, right? If you have a family, we need, want to participate. So, um, you know, it, it's essentially the contract in society is if you get sick, you eventually come back and participate when you're better. So why does this matter to you as a physician? Because you might prescribe things and find out your patient's not getting better. Why would that be? It could be that the symptoms are going on longer and you're scratching your head and you think, I'm doing everything right here. This should not last so long. What's going on? Or they might develop new symptoms out of their interactions with the healthcare. They might actually you know, be hospitalized and let's say some, this happens sometimes with people who have seizures and they go to surgery, they take out the epileptogenic cortex, but then through the course of their treatment, they, they have picked up on what are called psychogenic seizures, you know, from conversion disorder lecture, that people can have psychological, so seizures that are called non-epileptic seizures. And they did, they established that through seeing people have seizures and it becomes a kind of a psychological response. So iatrogenic symptoms just means that you pick it up by being in the healthcare world. It's like a new symptom that comes through treatment. But the sick role is an interesting one. It, you see it in the ICD-10 as part of post-concussional syndrome. So this is where um, patients might have a head trauma, um, loss with some, maybe with some loss of consciousness that um, has symptoms onset, have a, a max of four weeks, okay? So they have a history of head trauma with loss of consciousness and a symptom onset by max of four weeks. Now you don't really have to know the, the criteria. I'm, I'm showing you this to point out sick role, but just to put you at ease, you don't have to memorize the criteria for ICD-10 post-concussional syndrome. What I want to point out to you is that out of all these symptoms, adoption of the sick role is one of them, as part of post-concussional syndrome. So for those of you who are able to go to Dr. Barr's lecture on concussions, this term sponsored by the Neuroscience Society, we learned that the normal response to a concussion now, I'm not talking about severe brain injury or moderate to severe, just a mild head injury. The normal response is about five to seven days of recovery. And this is the symptom score here reflects some you know, tension, concentration, and balance issues. So the normal, this is the, basically people who don't have a concussion. This, is, this line are people who had a concussion and have a normal recovery of five to seven days where they're back to baseline. And these are people who have a prolonged recovery. So what we're interested in here, and why I'm showing you all this, is try to understand why some people have a harder time recovering, why they might get stuck in the sick role. So some of the predictors of that, well, if they had a worse head injury, that's a predictor. They might take longer because it was actually a real, uh, a worse head injury with worse symptoms. The number of prior concussions can play a role. That's a true. That's a an effect, so maybe it is actually more or worse brain damage. But here's where it gets interesting. So a history of neurologic or psychiatric symptoms can predict a longer return to recovery. Older age, maybe their brain is a little more fragile. But what's the single best predictor? Litigation. So that means that essentially there's some secondary gain to being sick. So whether it's financial or whether it's, again, that idea of sanction deviance, that they don't have to go back to their usual roles and responsibilities because they're sick. Some patients get stick, stuck in that, and it's a delicate situation for a physician to, to manage. And then finally, we're going to finish off how to give and how to give bad news. So this was a protocol for giving bad news set up by Walter Bale. 
in 2000. He's an oncologist, and there was a great need for kind of breaking down how to give bad news to patients as a series of steps. So it's called the SPIKES protocol. I can make this available, the actual article on Sakai, if you wanted to look through, read through the original article. But the important points here are that you need to make sure you set up a space to talk to the patient, that you make eye contact, you show empathy, don't let your pager go off. This is a, when you're giving bad news, you have to give it the respect and dignity it deserves. So if the patient wants to change into the regular clothes out of a hospital gown to get bad news, that's, that's appropriate. You want to find out what the patient understands beforehand because they already know a lot. Um, and so you just want to know where their head's at. They might actually be in denial. And then you have to adjust the way you give information based off of where they're at. So you have to ask first. So find out their perception. And find out if they have unrealis unrealistic expectations. Okay, so that's the learning about the perception of the patient. And then you have to basically invite them to participate by saying, how would you like to receive this information? How much detail do you want? Um, do you want family or friend members, fam family or friends to be around to help? And you want to make sure they know that you're always available to answer questions. Then you give them the knowledge. So it helps to give positive news. You can actually ask them, do you want to have the bad news or the good news first? Give info in small doses and check in to see if they're understanding it. And try to use non-technical words. The worst experience I ever had, I had a, a quite, a, quite a tragic thing happen when my, my daughter's twin died after a week in the neonatal intensive care unit. And the physician said to me, I'm very sorry, but twin B has expired. And that term I've never forgot because it was such a, a funny term to use. It, I guess it was a technical term, but for me it sounded like spoiled milk. And I thought, how could the, a, a baby's death be compared to spoiled milk? So it's just a term, but I, I think in the end it was an insensitive one. It's really hard to give bad news and use sensitive terms, but sometimes just you know knowing that certain, maybe there's a cultural thing too, but knowing the appropriate words to convey a really difficult um, or, or bad news. And again, showing empathy, connecting with the patient, not being afraid of showing some emotion, and giving them a strategy. So giving some, some sense of what the plans are for the future. So always make sure you have that follow-up appointment set. Check in about their mental health, their mental understanding. Maybe they need a little more support. If they show some signs of devastation, depression, anger, if they have strong emotions, you feel need more than what they're going to be getting in their follow-up appointment, you might need to set up um, a little bit more of a support structure for them. When you communicate prognosis, bad um, prognoses, you want to, to give some reasonable expectations. You know, it could be that your illness, you'll live another you know, three to nine months. It could be longer if it's successful, but unfortunately, it could also be shorter. So it's really important to be realistic, but also compassionate. So you give some, some range, because in the end, you really can't be sure. We have survival curves, we have data, but you can't be sure. These are just some common disease trajectories when essentially function drops off quickly, as opposed in cancer or in diseases like stroke where you have a loss of function, and then diseases like dementia where it's a slow progression over time. And finally, I wanna leave you with these key points just to remember for doctor-patient relationship as you look through your study guides, these are repeated in just about all the behavioral review guides. You can't blame the patient, you can't lie to the patient, the patient's autonomous, set limits, you can't abandon them, you can't refer out, they have to come back to you. 
and you want to follow their wishes and directives as closely as possible. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm.